Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, Hugh Strange interviews Beata Holmelbach of Mantecula Architects from Oslo. Hugh is a practitioner here in London uh, and is producing very beautiful work and also writing very thoughtfully about architects across Europe as part of his role as a critic for BD. He also runs a master's unit here in the School of Architecture. Beata Holmelbach joins us from Oslo, where she's professor in AHO, uh, the School of Architecture there in Oslo, and she's a director of Mantecula Architects, a practice concerned with, I suppose, exploring fundamental poetics of architecture somewhere between structure, tectonics and form. I do hope you enjoyed this podcast, which ranges quite widely, covering Beata's own formative influences and other insights that she has into the practice and education of architects today. Thank you. Beata, lovely to uh, talk with you in Kingston. Welcome to London, welcome to Kingston. I wondered if you could start by telling us a little about your experience studying in Oslo and uh, what that was like and who taught you and the good experiences and less so. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can do that. Uh, as you said, I, I studied in Oslo at the Oslo School of Architecture which was the name then, uh, and at that time the school was quite small. Uh, there were 30 students starting every year, so, um, and it was a five and a half year study. Uh, so it was really small and much less sort of bureaucratic than uh, universities are these days. I remember finding it uh, difficult to start because I th- the first year, or actually the first semester in the school, was very much about sort of uh, making objects and things that were more like sculptures than having to do with architecture. Really, it wasn't about space or structure or anything like that. But as soon as we started to to design buildings, I thought it was really very very interesting and, and fun. I enjoyed it a lot. And at that time, it was. It was such that uh, we didn't have bachelor and master. It was just a five and a half year run through the school, and we had to. There was not not sort of fixed courses, uh, so we could, or at least it was possible to choose studios or choose teachers, professors, from quite early on. At that time, at the school in Oslo, there were three very, at least three actually, maybe more, but three sort of. Um, very interesting people. Uh, one was Christian Oberschultz, uh, who is of course a theoretician, but also a very, well, he was, he's dead now, but he was so interested in uh, in architecture. <laughs> uh, and then there was uh, a woman, this Venke Selme, who was also a really good architect, um, practicing architect, designing houses mostly. Uh, at that time it wasn't so many female professors, so it was really nice to have her and she, probably because she she ran a practice as a woman quite early on, she, she had lots of uh, important knowledge to share to all students, but also to female students. And then there was Sarah Fien, who was fantastic, because he had done great work and because he had a very open mind. I guess it's a little bit sort of cliche to say he had a poetic approach to architecture, but I mean he opened or broadened 
field that we could look into uh, in our projects in a way. Anyway, I had Fian as a, as a professor in two studios quite early on. I think when I was in my third grade, no, third year, <laughs> that was great. Third year, I, I had have had him for two semesters already. Uh, and then it felt a little bit sort of, <laughs> what more can you do at the school? Mm-hmm. So uh, for different reasons, I wanted to go abroad. And then uh, Sverre said that I should contact John Hayduck, which I did. I went to New York with my portfolio, or uh, showed it to Hayduck, and he placed me in his class, which was a diploma class. In Oslo, I thought I was a very good student, <laughs> and coming to to Cooper Union and to the class of Hedrick, I, the whole world just. Uh, first of all, I mean, I saw so much interesting work and uh, so many skilled students. I mean, the workshops at that school were fantastic, and the way students were encouraged to work was very different than what I was used to. So I was almost paralyzed. I couldn't do anything almost for for a semester. Uh, it was really hard. Uh, and it was a diploma year, so it was also sort of uh, final in, in a way, although I was not in my own sort of diploma level. So in a way, it felt I felt that meeting with Coop Union was devastating. <laughs> I almost <laughs> stopped believing in architecture. And then uh, I went back to Oslo after, after spending, spending. I came during Christmas, and then so I spent the sort of last semester of diploma there. And then I went back to, to Oslo and took another studio, and really didn't believe in what I was doing. And then I went back to New York to draw freehand for a semester. Uh, thought it was fantastic just to draw freehand uh, with an art teacher. Uh, so I, I really was sort of trying to build up a new foundation <laughs> for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I went back to Oslo and did my diploma. Uh, in That was a year after, or one and a half year after I first went to New York. So, And that was the first time I really enjoyed doing an architectural project again. So I think I learned a lot from uh, from. Cooper Union and a lot from John Hayduck, but it took me a year and a half to understand what I had learned. <laughs> and only through reflection later on? Yes, first of all, I mean, I knew about the school, I knew about his work, and I, of course, uh, I don't know if I admired it, but I was curious about it, and I, I had a lot of respect for it. And when I found that I wasn't able to produce anything like it myself, I just it just felt so... Uh, disappointing and I was so disappointed in myself <laughs> really. I think that Heidek and, and Fian had something similar in their way of talking about architecture. For them architecture was more than just a practice or uh, something to teach. It was really about a belief in something. It was really profound sort of belief in architecture as an important thing in people's lives and their own lives I think mm. mostly. And that was very impressive to be around people that had this s- strong, strong uh, relationship to architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, very inspiring. They seem very, um, from the outside, they seem very different architects in terms of their output. Mm-hmm. Hey, Duck, uh, with the emphasis on the paper projects, the 
the unbuilt work mm-hmm. and fend with this kind of very tectonic, um, tectonic mm. sense of the built work being the point of mm. it. Mm. Is that a duality or a kind of difference that you um, uh, recognised or, or, uh, or experienced? You know, I think or? it was much stronger to recognise this uh, similarity, uh, mm-hmm. which I think had very much to do about, um, I guess you could say with a sort of fashionable world that it's sort of narrative architecture <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but that sounds too flat in many ways of course the the, the sort of project for John Hader was more than anything else these the masks and all the paperwork uh, with both texts and and, uh, and drawings and models and for Svarefian it was uh, uh, mostly built work he also had a very hard time uh, getting projects, getting commissions in Norway, so we hadn't built that much. It was only in his last years that he got, got big uh, big commissions. He also had this way of, I don't I haven't thought enough about this to express it clearly, but it was had something to do about being very sort of engaged in his own work and uh, and also associating very freely so so when he talked about his own work or when he gave lectures he always brought into the topic um, so so much um, uh, inspiring and uh, evocative uh, material in a way and I thought uh, Hedrick did the same thing I remember him coming to the lectures sort of talking about how he had been flying around in his backyard it's of course a very strange thing to say and you you understand that is not true, but but Fian could say the same thing. It was uh, it was this very um, yeah, poetic way of understanding uh, the discipline in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and after your time at Oslo School and studying, mm-hmm. what did you what go did? straight? Yeah, what did you do then? Did you go straight into work or? Uh, yes, I. Um, or actually no, I went. Yes, I went into work, but I went back to New York, uh, and there I worked for uh, Raymond Abraham for a while. I had had never had him as a teacher, and he had a very small office. <laughs> By the time I was there, the f- the first half year, I guess it was only me, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he was teaching most of the time. So, so it was a very sort of committed situation. Uh, where you had to spend a lot of time in the office. Uh, and we worked on this um, apartment building in Graz, which was he had not built very much either by that time. So I think he had done things much earlier, but for a long time he had been working mostly with paper projects. So that was an interesting experience. In the end of my period there, uh, Anders Abraham, do you know him? Uh, he's in Copenhagen. Uh, very interesting architect also he came uh, as well so we were two and to me that was also fantastic to be just to get to know Raymond Abrams work and uh, get to know the way he thought I I think I've been incredibly lucky (laughs) that is what I'm trying to say I I, both Nurba Schulz and Selmer and Fien and Hedrick and and Abraham they are they were great inspiring people all of them Uh, 
What were you doing in Abraham's office? We, we um, I don't know what you call the different phases of the of a project here, but but uh, he had got the commission. Uh, I don't know if it was a competition or not, but at least he had. It was actually for the Etanit company in in uh, Austria, so it was a fairly large apartment building where um, the premise was to use Etanit in the facade. Uh, and he had sort of done the, pre- not preliminary sketches, but the sort of first sketch project. And my job was to develop it. Well, I mean, I was a f- newly educated student, but I did all the drawings for the for this uh, sort of hardline drawings where we developed the projects a bit further. I, I guess we worked in, I, they don't have a metric scale, but equivalent of uh, one to 50 drawings maybe. And then the material was sent to Austria and Günther Domenig was following it up and drawing it, doing the, the sort of building drawings for it. Mm-hmm. And I, then I didn't have anything to do with it. I went back to Norway. Okay. <laughs> hmm. And you established your practice in Oslo when? Not then. Uh, when I got back to Norway, I, I worked for a little while in the... The Norwegian Railroad had its own architectural firm, mm-hmm. and so I worked there not very long, for half a year maybe, uh, and then I started being a teaching assistant at the same time. Uh, at the Oslo School of Architecture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I enjoyed teaching very much. And at the same time then, I, I wasn't so happy about working in an office. <laughs> uh, I felt that at least it wasn't as fun as being in the school. I, and, uh, it's fantastic being a student because then you can focus only on one one thing in a way. You can really develop a project on your own terms. So um, at that time, I guess this was around uh, yeah, in the beginning of the 90s maybe, no, middle of the 90s. Uh, I also started to search for something that I could develop as a sort of paper project, something I could work on, like a school project in a way, uh, where I could set the limitations myself and something that that I could work on parallel to working in an office and teaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then I started to work on this, uh, or I looked for a sort of a brief for the longest time because I knew it had to be had to last, it had to be sort of inspiring for a long time because it probably would take a long time to finish a project when it was being done parallel to lots of other things. Uh, And I'm sure I was very inspired by my experiences in New York that it was actually possible to do paper projects. Uh, In Norway there was no tradition for that at all. Um, So then I just started to do this series of houses that are based on literary characters, which I continued to work on for many years. Uh, And then I also continued to teach. I stopped working at the railroad architectural company and uh, started sort of slowly to try to establish my own practice. it was really, really hard to get work and so, so what did I do? I edited a book about timber work. I, I don't remember if I'm not doing this in the right sort of <laughs> sequence, but uh, more or less um, this is the way it was. 
And then we established, uh, first I started, then I married and got three children and uh, every, I mean, our life is a soup. It's like private life, teaching, office, work, everything is one big thing because yeah, you, you probably know exactly how it is. But I, of course, met Pierre and married to Pierre and we got children and we started uh, Monte Cula together. Would yes. you like to say where the name yeah. of the office the, comes yeah, from? Yeah, of course, because everyone asks, everybody asks, well, I don't know how, how you say it. Because people think that it's sort of a hula hula name. <laughs> but my middle name is Monte. Uh, and Kula means bullet. And that is a Swedish soldier's name. Uh, the, in the last war in Sweden, or probably it was a tradition much longer than that, but uh, the soldiers, when they finished work in the war, they got a small, or many of them at least, got a small property and, and uh, possibly a new name if they wanted. And there were, are all these great Swedish names that are called like brave and bullet and strong and fast and it's very masculine <laughs> masculine name and kula means bullet and it's uh, Pierre's grandfather's name mm. and we like the name Monte Kula yeah. because it doesn't say anything about who we are or what we do or anything like that it's a real sort of pseudonym do you say this uh, what do you call when say when a writer writes under a foreign oh, name? Pseudonym. Yes. Pseudonym. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. I'm sorry. Um, could we go back um, before we talk about some of your built projects? You mentioned the paper project that you did before you set up, and you also talked about um, Hayduk and that tradition mm-hmm. in Hayduk's work. I wondered if you could talk about some of the other paper projects you've done in the office. Mm-hmm. And the the role they play in the yeah, office, yeah, yeah. and how you why you do them, and how you use them, and what mm. purpose they fulfil within the mm. kind of creative life of the office. Yeah, to us, there. I mean, we haven't done that many paper projects. We have uh, uh, it's this Virginia series, which is this called first I talked about, and then uh, we started out. They are very often linked to literature. Uh, the Virginia series was actually started off by Virginia Woolf. <laughs> uh, we're reading Virginia Woolf. And then uh, sometime later, uh, we started another based on um, a poem by Cesar, or some poems by Cesar Valleja, a Peruvian writer, uh, which was about prisons. And we started that. These projects start, first of all, because we have the time to do them, uh, and very often because uh, we feel the need to do them, and the need comes from either from uh, being invited somewhere and you are to talk about your projects or your work, and in this prison project we had only built one project, and I was a little bit embarrassed that we hadn't built more work. <laughs> so uh, so we started this uh, Wasted Wall, that project is called, about the prisons. Uh, so we, we started that and did uh, did that actually to have something more to present and to talk about in this symposium I was invited to. And then later on uh, we were having a show somewhere and then we thought that was a nice opportunity to develop another project. So we did this uh, tribunal for the displaced it's called. It's uh, 
project but actually is is uh, referring to one of the Hayduk projects uh, the 13 watchtowers of Camareggio so that was a one paper project and then we were invited for another exhibition in Rome and we did one project and now this last year we have done the last so far paper projects which is actually a commissioned work from a museum in France so so in one way it's something that we feel that we do mostly for our own sake to to keep ourselves busy and also to to be able to sort of formulate a topic and or a brief you could say uh, and uh, and actually pursue that without interference <laughs> it's something uh, when you work as an architect there are so many voices <laughs> that you have to relate to there's clients with all their needs and regulations and budgets and sites and uh, all of them fantastic in their own way but they're also very sort of stressful in a way uh, and uh, it's always very interesting to to and very hard it's really hard to to manage to uh, sort of run the project so that the end result is actually what you want <laughs> that is the hardest thing and uh, and when you do a paper project of course you set the rules yourself so you it's much easier to pursue a thought uh, and in the office, I think we we see these projects as very important for us. Uh, that's one thing, but also it's as a way to to train ourselves almost to train ourselves in evaluating what is important, what is not important. When we work, our projects are very often, well, not very often. We don't have that many projects, so it's a little bit ridiculous to say very often. But when we do work, we are interested in form. We are they have a sort of we are interested in trying to make buildings that uh, are stimulating to look at, in a way. Um, how to find the right form is very hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. And these paper projects are, are a way, in a way, to, to study and, and explore the relationship between a brief and, a for and forms, architectural form. Could you say a little more specifically about the most recent one you worked on for Frack. Yeah. Uh, yes, it was interesting. <laughs> it, we were asked by this uh, Centre Frack in uh, uh, Orléans, <laughs> in France, which is a... Uh, we didn't uh, know much about this place. It's a, it's a museum, a regional museum in, in France, and they have sort of specialised in architecture, so they have a fantastic collection of... a uh, large collection of... Um, architectural drawings and architectural models. Lots of it is sort of uh, paperwork. I mean, they have Heyduk and Abraham and, and uh, Walter Pichler and they are, I mean, uh, lots of people we have or I have related to earlier, but, but they also have lots of more recent things and, and from all over the world. They are starting the Biennale tradition now, at least they are, they are organizing their first Biennale and, and um, we were contacted if we wanted to do a project from for them for this Biennale and then they sort of commissioned us to do a project that were to go into their collection and that to, for us that was really very nice because as I said earlier in Norway we don't have tradition for this kind of work in, at all so 
what all we do as sort of paper projects in Norway, no one is interested. <laughs> it's really true. <laughs> so it was very nice to get this invitation. It was very open. Uh, the title of the Biennale uh, is uh, Walking Through Someone Else's Dream, which is a very open and evocative title. Uh, so we we didn't know what to do, <laughs> uh, and uh, and the the hardest thing about paper project is to to formulate the brief. That is what almost takes the longest time because you have so many possibilities and uh, and you don't know what the project is going to be about. Uh, and as I said, we often. I think in all our earlier work, we have worked with literature as a point of departure, sort of because the sort of inter interpretation of something is very important for us as a way to start, that we somehow take departure in a story or or a poem or a, some sort of narrative of a human condition, and then we we work our way from that into an architectural brief. Uh, and in this case, we and and many of the earlier paper projects have been houses. I mean, they have been about uh, home, the the idea of home. Uh, but this time we we thought maybe we should do that, but we weren't sure. And then we started to think about this title, walking through someone else's dream, and um, we started to. Question: Whose dream are we going to walk through, <laughs> or whose dream are we talking about? And then we, we, we got interested in the idea of exile, uh, uh, this concept of uh, isolating people away from their sort of habitat. <laughs> and I think we got interested in that because we had this idea. I mean, we we are not very political in our work. Uh, we have some work that could be understood politically but but this was not so uh, and we are not very sort of um, interested in uh, in sustainability or all these things that one has to be interested in when one does a project but in paperwork we are trying I guess we are much more interested in in sort of architecture as a, a sort of almost an existential thing um, so we we were looking for for a point of departure that had to do with that could give us uh, something to interpret and some lives to interpret in a way. Uh, so we got interested in the exile condition and we thought that when when a person is exiled and uh, experiences a sort of profound solitude, uh, it is possible to sort of start to imagine what that feels like, what it is like. and. Uh, uh, one could also guess that the, the, that the dreams are very sort of potent. <laughs> uh, so we um, we found uh, five different characters that, for different reasons, had been isolated on islands. Islands because that's extra isolated. <laughs> uh, so we found five characters: two women and three men that, throughout history, have been. And been isolated on islands. Fictional or real? Real people, real people. <laughs> and and their stories, of course, one know a little bit about because uh, it's the, the first one is um, an Icelandic 
arson. Uh, I mean, he lit fire to some farms and killed people. So he was uh, banned and uh, he withdrew or hid himself on an island outside Iceland. And when you're banned, anybody can kill you without being sort of, uh, pursued for it. So he lived there for five years until he, he was killed. And uh, do you want to hear all the stories? No, no, no. <laughs> no way. I can. I, I will. If there's time in the lecture today, I will say a little bit about it. But anyway, from these stories, we we started to imagine what they were dreaming about, and from these ideas, we developed an architectural idea. So there's five architectural ideas in a way that are materialized in uh, five small buildings. They are not houses, but they are um, constructions, structures. Um, mm. And then we had some constraints. We gave ourselves some other constraints that had to do with, with having some resistance in a way or having something to work with. Mm. Um, and moving on from the um, paper project to some of your built works, many of these are public projects, mm -hmm. often small and often in quite remote places in the Norwegian countryside. Mm -hmm. Could you say something generally about the types of commissions and the types of sites and the type of client that you've been mm -hmm. working with in these kind of completed projects. And I suppose the culture of commissioning in Norway at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not that hard to remote places in Norway. <laughs> that is. But it's true that, uh, that many of the projects we have built, almost all of them, are on uh, remote places. And they are all public. Actually, no, there's one important project for us, which is built in the architectural museum. <laughs> but but uh, otherwise, it's out in the landscape. Our first project was a, was a hydropower station, and that was a, a competition, which we won. And then we were invited into this National Tourist Route project, which many people have heard about. It's, um, state road department or whatever you call it that in the early 90s established this project defining some stretches of, of road as being extra picturesque extra interesting for tourists traveling by car and then they started to to hire architects to do small interventions along these roads interventions that had to do with tourism. I mean, it could be anything from a little parking lot to a, to a viewing platform or a public toilet or a rest stop, etc. So there's many of these projects are realized and many of them are not realized. I think for the sort of Norwegian architectural culture, it, this project has been incredibly important because it has been possible for, for or for two reasons. It had first or second reason is that it has made it possible for small firms to to work on public commissions and and for many firms uh, actually to survive on that kind of uh, commission because it's uh, although it's small projects they are very professionally run so so there is enough time there is enough budget there is enough support system around the whole project to to make it happen in a good way but the most important thing uh, with that project I think is that they from the very start had an sort of architectural ambition that they were interested in creating arch or architecture that somehow could um, contribute to the experience of the landscape in a positive way they were sort of demanding clients in, in many ways they really wanted uh, wanted the projects to um, 
yeah, to contribute to to what was often fantastic nature and fantastic sceneries and, and landscape. And that that is really hard to work with actually, to because how is one to place something in in a scene which is almost untouched by human hands and and very powerful and very and naturally very interesting and beautiful. That is hard. But uh, so so this national tourists root system they they discuss the projects very thoroughly and there's a sort of long follow-up uh, of each project so we have done a couple of those and we have also done projects for not for the national tourist route but for for the road department this ferry stop is for them one thing i find very interesting in your practice's work is how the relationship of the built works and the paper projects mm-hmm. that one as you described is developed through a process of um, many, many constraints and lots of people's input and many frustrations often, whilst the paper projects operate in a kind of free space. Mm. And yet there's clearly a kind of relationship between the two for you and a um, a formal Mm. relationship Mm. that the built works and the unbuilt works share much in there yeah in, in the kind of in the end in the end piece mm. and I can't help thinking because of that, that there's some particular place that you put on the kind of development of a personal language mm. of a, the development of a position of a, of a kind of language of form that is able to permeate the various things you do mm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the how you think of this kind of idea of the, a personal language or a kind of position or mm. the development mm. of a position. Mm. First of all, I think it's, I mean, the, I think that is what is very interesting uh, with architecture and that is, of course, that it is exactly this meeting of something which is personal and something which is not personal. Uh, I think... Uh, all these requirements that comes from outside, they are, if anything is to be built, you have to relate to them. And they are, they are not personal, they are uh, concrete and factual. <laughs> but, uh, but it's your own personal experience that uh, has, to, has to develop all this uh, information into form. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I think that what for instance, the paperwork and uh, and what I th- I think as time goes by, what I become more and more sure of is that um, to sort of trust a sort of formal intuition is interesting. <laughs> I find that very interesting. <laughs> uh, that uh, I mean, there's lots of architecture that is fantastic and inspiring and very very good for many reasons, but. In our work, I think we are interested in in um, if we get a formal idea, we are interested in two things. One is to to see if it can have a sort of structural potential, literally as uh, structure that goes from both paperwork and, and uh, real work, and and then in, it's a little bit like if it is a little bit difficult to achieve, if we can imagine that it's hard to make it happen. We are even more interested in it. <laughs> it's sort of the challenge of actually making it. That sounds maybe stupid, <laughs> but it's true that it's sort of this. Uh, for instance, this first of this vault, it was really uh, not expect to be expected 
Uh, that was going to be built, <laughs> both because it was, a, I mean, it was a, a poem they didn't expect, and there's lots of sort of um, building physics uh, related to it, which has to do with moisture and and uh, cold coldness and climate and all these things that had to be solved. So it was really tricky. Condensation. Condensation, exactly, and uh, all these things that had to be solved, and and we were just very curious how to do it. So it, we really wanted to make it happen in a way. But the, but the moment that section was drawn in a sketch, we knew that that was what we wanted to do. <laughs> and to trust the sketch, that is, I think that is, that is hard when you're a student, but it gets in a way easier when you get older because you know uh, uh, why like it. Or like we talked to the students today, I think it's really important to, to, to really find out for oneself um, what things are and what they really are to you and and how you yeah how you relate to form and and material and everything find the words for it (laughs) it's stupid to say that not finding the english words but (laughs) but this to trust the sort of formal intuition that is interesting to me do you understand what i mean yeah absolutely i'm wondering how how students can develop that. I, I appreciate it. it is a difficult it is a difficult thing learning to trust your intuition. Especially about sort of, I mean you when you sketch that's why I appreciate this hand hand sketching in your in your class because I think we start every process in the office by sketching and uh, and I I do not make beautiful sketches at all but but I sketch more and more actually and 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 when you recognize that form in a way that you that sort of manage to capture all the thoughts you have about the project, that moment uh, is so fantastic. When you recognize that moment, and and that is, um, if you're aware of that, the fact that it is like that. I mean, I'm sure it's not like that for all people or all, all architects, but for some architects, it's very much about sort of almost recognizing a form and seeing that yes that is it it that has has everything i'm asking for uh, and then uh, sort of take the or have the persistence maybe to to stay with it and figure out how it can be built that is that is what we find really interesting part of that's a very personal sensibility but when we realize our projects we mm. work with other people. Mm. We work with people in our office, mm. engineers who help us realise these mm. projects, the contractors who do it in a different way as mm. well. How does one share that? How do you share that sense of your gut feeling, your intuition mm. that's somehow at the root of a project with that kind of sense of a kind of project as a collaboration? Yeah, um, I mean, we have a small office now. We are four people often we are three people and sometimes we're only two people we're never less than two people but uh, but the last years we've been three most of the time and of course we discuss very openly about every phase of every project and but it's it's often sort of an idea is conceived and then if one believes in that idea it uh, it has a lot to do with enthusiasm for architecture actually <laughs> to to sort of be enthusiastic about it and and knowing that it's worth pursuing it <laughs> mm. then you can uh, 
sort of involve other people. Um, also, we have a very good engineer, which we've, whom we've been working with, who's the same kind of type. He's sort of enthusiastic about challenges. Not that what we are doing is very challenging. I mean, we are doing very simple things. But but yeah, I think it has to do with some kind of enthusiasm for for the discipline, actually. Or for not discipline, but for architecture. Actually making something go from being a sketch to being built and experienced is fantastic. You spoke a little about the projects, the realised projects in the countryside and mentioned very briefly the project that you'd done um, in the Oslo Museum mm. um, that I understand relates to um, Otwisaka. Mm. Mm. Would you um, say a little about that project? Uh, yeah, um, uh, that was, um, that was a, along the same uh, road in a way. Uh, we were asked to, uh, in the Architectural Museum in Oslo, it's an old bank building and then Sverrefjens, do people know who Sverrefjens is? In this yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, at least his last project was a new pavilion to the Architectural Museum. So that was the last thing he ever did. Um, and we were asked to, or we were approached by the museum, as you would say. <laughs> uh, they had an idea for an exhibition where they wanted to show a project Sverrefjens had not realized. It was a, co- a competition for the World Fair in Osaka in 1970. And it's a very sort of iconic competition material. He made it, um, he had this idea of, a, of an inflatable structure that was breathing. Uh, this was in the beginning of the sort of uh, sustainable awareness, I guess. So he had this idea about a structure that was breathing, reminding us of the importance of air, fresh air. And then he he was um, had this idea that in this inflatable structure, which was almost like a lung, one could project images of uh, of nature, uh, untouched nature, and also of uh, images of of sort of oil catastrophes and and the sort of uh, the backside of uh, industrial uh, development. And in the Osaka context, this was quite special because this uh, this was the time when people had tremendous faith in uh, in the future uh, and in the sort of industrial development. So so this um, sort of dark side to the competition entry by Fien was interesting in a way. But anyway, he didn't win, <laughs> so it was never built. But it was this very large, 25 meter long and 15 meter tall inflatable lung that uh, one could enter and look at all these images. And the museum in Oslo, they have uh, sort of inherited the Fien archive and they thought they, thought they could make an exhibition of a, with a large model of this project. And they contacted us uh, asking if we were, could do it. And uh, and we thought that it would not be so interesting to make a large model because I think it's really hard to ex- exhibit architecture <laughs> yeah, because you can look at interesting models and beautiful drawings and all that but but architecture is, I mean, it's so nice when you can experience architecture and especially this Fian project which many people have seen models, model images on but no one has really been inside of it and I think look, yeah, I was at least very curious what it would be like. So we suggested to make a sort of um, 
an, uh, one, an interpretation of it that could be built in one and fill the whole pavilion. So it was in a way an unbuilt Fien project interpreted and solved, not not least, and then built inside another Fien pavilion. And and the only material we had was his competition posters as a project. It wasn't solved at all how the inflatable or pneumatic aspects were going to be solved, etc. So, so it was actually for us, it was a fairly big project to, to figure out how to do it. And I had such enormous respect for Sverdefjell. We had been dead for many years, but uh, we were so concerned that it had to be done well. <laughs> so we we collaborated with this guy in Zürich who was a specialist in inflatable structures and we decided that it had to be sewn and not glued and it had to be beautifully crafted uh, um, the wooden part of the structure etc and we, so we we chose material and even developed some materials that uh, just because we really had very high demands on the result for ourselves, uh, because it was very fun, <laughs> and it became it was fantastic entering that space for the first time because it's really like being in nothing. <laughs> it's a very very sort of it's all about light. We 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 had the museum take down all the light fixtures, so that is only natural light in the pavilion and. Um, it was a very beautiful space. <laughs> After seeing all the models and drawings mm. of Fenn, was yes. it what you expected? Yes, or? in a way it was, and also we, we were sort of co-curating the exhibition and we decided that we should not project any images, it should just be about this space. So it was really just empty, an empty space. Yeah. Uh, and we, But we decided, signed, there was a bench in, in Fenn's original pavilion and we designed a bench in this one too, a steel bench, so you could sit down and actually spend time in there. And it was, uh, we of course, we, I don't know what Svarifian would have said, but it, I think it, it was a very interesting experience because it was breathing this uh, structure. Uh, so you could hear it breathe and you could see that it moved. And, uh, uh, and because this, uh, the glass pavilion that this was built inside was sort of fairly open, so or completely open, so the sun passing during the day uh, created fantastic sort of light and shadow uh, sort of situation in that pavilion so it was um, it was a little I think it was as we thought it would be but it was just interesting to or nice to experience very nice for you as well to work with a project of someone you had yeah, taught you yeah yeah very, very nice really very nice and it was also nice to have this uh, this sort of voice of Sverre in the back, sort of, yeah, it, it brought us closer to him in a way. <laughs> and you still teach in Oslo, mm -hmm. um, the same school that he taught you in. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you teach there? How do you, what's your, what kind of projects do you do? do, you do? And do you, do you feel that you are working in a kind of school culture that bears a resemblance to him or...? Ah, I, I think there are certain things that many Norwegian architects 
of my generation and, and older <laughs> have inherited from film. I mean, those who are who are interested in his work are trying to live up to certain things that that was important to him and that consequently we learned from him and and that had to do with with the importance of structure uh, that the sort of poetry of a building can be very closely related to its to its uh, construction uh, for instance that one try almost try to avoid making windows as holes in the walls but the light always is related to to the structure in a way um, so that is to some of the teachers at school and and uh, myself included i think that emphasis on the relationship between the sort of tectonic solutions and the stat do you say do you say structure or static structure structure yeah uh, the importance of that in the conception of an architectural idea that i think you can sort of trace back to Sverdefjell. Uh, and what I teach, I teach a um, master class every other semester and also diploma. I also taught other places and then when I got back to school, I was re responsible for first year for some years and then I st stopped with the first year and uh, now I only teach master and diploma. But when I started teaching or having my own studios in a way, I. I guess I was more concerned about what was going on in the world and more sort of socially aware projects. But more and more now I follow this formal intuition. <laughs> also in the briefs in a way or in the development of the brief. I actually think it's so hard to do a good building and if you don't train on the art of building in a way or the art of uh, conceiving an architectural concept. Uh, if you don't train on that in school, you will never train on it later. <laughs> so now I I give very sort of classic briefs, like a museum or a church or a hotel or something like that. I mean, very straightforward briefs and uh, try to work with them as good as can. We can. I teach. I always have a teaching assistant. And um, to end, I wonder, following on from that, what advice would you give a student today? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> you know, I think it's being a teacher uh, in architecture. I think is more and more hard for every year because there's so many things you can do, <laughs> and you have to sort of choose not to do certain things in order to do some things. Properly, uh, you have to be able to focus and to pursue sort of uh, what we have this word in in Norwegian saying "holdekursen," and that means that is what you do when you're on a boat and you sort of keep the follow the line, follow the line in a way, or follow the yeah the direction you set out to follow. Uh, so that is in in a way one way one thing I would say to the students: find out what you're interested in and pursue it and stick to it. <laughs> but I, at the same time, I think it's hard to be a teacher because architecture is becoming. I mean, very few people get to design buildings and build their own or have their own work built. Very many end up doing very very small things on very very large buildings and not having a sort of understanding of the whole. Yeah, we are, at least in our office, we are very interested in having control of the whole. <laughs> and that's also one of the reasons why we have small projects, I guess. 
Um, but for, for students, I would say, I think the more projects you do, the better you get. Uh, so that is one thing. Uh, that's just a very clear advice. <laughs> uh, take every opportunity you have to, uh, to design a building. <laughs> so that means also entering student competitions and, and always choose studios where you actually get to design a building. Uh, I would say because I'm interested in building. <laughs> but of course there's uh, urban questions and, and other topics in the field that probably could be very interested, interesting. But um, for me, the sort of art of building is, um, is really the core subject in architecture. <laughs> um, more advice? Work hard. <laughs> yeah, but that is uh, true. You will, it's necessary. It's really, as now I think it's the third time I'm saying, I'm saying it, that it's so hard to, to have something realized the way you want it. And then you have to work really hard to get, make it happen. <laughs> so get used to it in school. I also, we talked a little bit earlier today about uh, hand um, drawing. And uh, I think that is uh, something which people should, or students, uh, really should take seriously. Serious or seriously. I mean, of course, you have to learn all the programs that that is required, but, but there's something so incredibly immediate about the hand drawing. It's close to thinking. It's very close to thinking. Actually, I had a fantastic experience. Can we go back a bit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're working with this archipelago project because... I mean, in the office we we sketch by hand, and then we we quite early start to develop the projects uh, in AutoCAD, and uh, yeah, I work in AutoCAD. Uh, but then in this project, one of the constraints was that we said that each project should be drawn on one large sheet of watercolor paper. So I went back to hand drawing again, which I did when I was young, and. First of all, it was very fun and really nice to work with hand again. But, but what I discovered is that I think completely different when I uh, when I design by hand, because I, as I did when I was a student, I always worked on on um, thick paper, so I couldn't trace. I always had to construct the drawing every time I wanted to draw do hard line drawings, and that meant that. The, the the sort of presence of geometry is very strong. Uh, that I yeah when I when I start to draw something I I use sort of geometric principle to divide lines or to find directions or or to sort of yeah, give form to, to whatever I'm I'm working with and and that actually is a very different way of thinking than what you do in a computer where you think about numbers and and where you think about oh how wide does this have to be in order to be able to pass through this passage or something. It's, do you understand what I mean? That, it's, uh, that it was so interesting to experience that I actually design, uh, not differently, but have a completely different way of designing uh, when I'm working by hand. And the principles of geometry are, are in a way quite absolute. Uh, much more absolute than numbers in one way because numbers can you can add to or subtract four and they are still valid in a way but uh, but you have to be quite precise when you work uh, 
with geometrical principles uh, when you construct drawings, and, and that is, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, yeah. So hand drawing, people, you should draw by hand. Not necessarily construct drawings like I was talking about now, but but this to sketch is a fantastic way of communicating with yourself, <laughs> finding out what you're what you're thinking. Great. Beata, thanks very much for visiting us in Kingston and um, sharing the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. Join us next time when Laura Evans will interview NP2F architects from Paris. Before signing off, I'd like to thank Laura for her ongoing support in this series of lectures and podcasts, and also Madoka Ellis, who edits and provides support in terms of sound. And to yourselves, our listeners, um, it's been a year since we set up this podcast and we've been overwhelmed by the interest in it with over 20,000 listens um, from 86 countries. It's nice to know there's an audience for this type of reflective conversation on the nature of practice. If you like what we're doing, please do remember to subscribe and to leave comments and reviews. I look forward to you joining us in the next episode. Thank you.